from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Seamus. Hello. Seamus, you get any rides in this week? I did not, unfortunately, but I did get a, a lot of walking. I was in the great state of New York in the city and in the uh, in the countryside and it was beautiful with my family great before we get started i i think we have to talk a little bit about what happened in boulder colorado last week a 17 year old u.s cyclist named magnus white was killed riding his bike training in boulder colorado which is a very uh, cycling friendly town for the most part We've been talking a lot on the show about getting road cyclists more involved in the advocacy world of bike safety on the street. And this brings up this story about the 17-year-old cyclist. He was on a training ride. He's a U.S. national cyclocross champion. He was training to get ready to go to Scotland to partake in the world championships of mountain biking. And he was riding on the shoulder and What they call it in the article that I was reading about his death was there was a lane violation and a young woman driving a car hit him from behind and killed him. Our roads aren't safe for people training for rides and our hearts and and thoughts go out to Magnus's family. But what really struck me about this story is the U.S. cycling official who announced it at first called it that Magnus White was killed in an accident, and it certainly was not an accident. Mm-hmm. And these are the kinds of language changes we're trying to make. And when someone in U.S. cycling makes that mistake, and, and I make that mistake often, so it's, it's not, I'm not blaming anybody, but we have to keep bringing this up. That's maybe counterintuitive to a lot of people to say, what, it's not an accident? We've been talking about it for a long time, but maybe we could have somebody help us to define that. That brings up our our guest this morning. Rafael Hernandez is is our guest this morning, and he is the co-founder of Trash Pandas. He's also with uh, No More Ghost Bikes. As well as the LA Bike Calendar. We'll get into that in a second. But Rafael, welcome to Bike Talk. Hi, everyone. Yeah, I'm uh, Rafael Hernandez. Um, I go by Raf. I'm the main organizer of Trash Panda Cycling and also a member of No More Ghost Bikes. Both of them are LA-based groups. Um, No More Ghost Bikes is just involved in trying to create awareness for cycling resources and safety. Um, We started because of the bicycle deaths that were occurring in early 2022. And we hosted a first ride of silence. Uh, There hadn't been one in Los Angeles and we've actually organized a second one since then. And then Trash Panda Cycling is just my main affiliation, we host uh, weekly rides. So what do you think, Raf, about calling it an accident? When someone commits a, quote, lane violation and kills uh, somebody who's walking or biking? We've been conditioned to use accident in not just the cycling culture, but just in within our, our general culture, right? Because I think that many people are afraid to assign culpability or even to just pause culpability so we're like oh this was an accident it's like well no like when you really put it through the lens of the cycling community and the things that we go through while on the road these things are not accidents the case with magnus this lane violation that's something that could have been prevented that's not an accident an accident would have been like the driver their tire popped and couldn't help but swerve into him and then yeah it's a tragic accident but 
if this driver had maybe better training or better education, you know, we could have avoided Magnus being lost. We try to call them incidents or instances or, you know, something that is broader and it doesn't take the culpability away until, you know, we actually have like, the necessary scrutiny. I got hit the other day, like it's just another incident, or I got doored the other day, you know, in this particular incident, you know, it's not to say like, oh, this was an accident. It's like, no, like a person who doors you as an example, they could look over their shoulder to make sure they're not about to throw their door open into a cyclist coming or even a car. Same thing with like a person going into the shoulder. It's like, why are they about to crash into me when they could see me right in front of them? Like those are not accidents, they're incidents. And they need to be scrutinized, you know, more comprehensively. The term accident really implies there's no fault or or something. And each incident is unique. What happened to this young cycling star Magnus in Boulder, it really did uh, hit a lot of us when it was referred to as an accident. This is not an accident. This is something that was preventable. Accident also seems to trivialize the, the tragic nature of it. It's a tragedy. We lost this rising star for the United States, somebody who would have been an ambassador for cycling. These are murders. At least manslaughter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we call it motorist violence or like car violence. The early deaths in 2022, one of them, it was just car violence. It was road rage. And then the other one, the person had stolen a car. Um, and they were just trying to speed off and they just had no discretion as to like who was in front of them and they hit two cyclists. So at mm -hmm. that point, like those aren't even just incidents, like it's car violence. That's where it gets into manslaughter and murder. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah. we all ride in the shoulder of the road at one point where cars are passing us on our left going, you know, 20 or 30 miles faster than we are going. Anybody will get angry at a cyclist and traffic violence, it goes unreported. Before we move on, I want to finish with the Magnus White story. The crash that killed Magnus is still under investigation. They have ruled out drugs or alcohol, but they have not ruled out distracted driving. Yeah. And I think we can all imagine that that's how a crash like that could happen. Raf, tell us about Trash Pandas. What is Trash Panda? So Trash Panda Cycling, it was founded, a friend of mine, uh, his name's uh, Tony Rodriguez, we had decided that we wanted to just do our own like little local group. We had been in like other cycling groups. So I'm just like, yeah, like, let's go right around. Like we know the full spread of uh, around town. Five years later, we continue to host our rides from Trash Panda Cycling. Um, just recently this year, um, we took on a project called the LA Cycling Calendar, which is just something to try to encourage people to start writing more to provide some sort of resource that would like allow people to check in with all the different cycling events that are going on around town. It could be either frequent ones or one-off events. It's really easy to do it. You just use the Google calendar function and you make it a public calendar and anyone could subscribe to it. And then it lives on their phone and they can see all the rides that are happening and whatever. We took some inspiration from some of our predecessors some folks had tried to do like a weekend kind of roundup thing shout out to the mixed race they're another local ride out of mar vista they were doing a project like that for a time so they were inspiration and i know some years ago we even had like a website you know that showed all of the rides and that fizzled but we wanted to get something that would be 
really easily accessible, super easy to update. We don't need to go up there and like change the weekly rides. They just live there forever until someone tells us otherwise. And Raf, can anyone post? Absolutely. So we have rides from all over Southern California, like LA area or events, you know, whatever it may be, um, they could post on it. So the way we have it formatted is myself and and Caro, the co-moderator, we have a Google form or Google sheet that you could fill out and be like, what event is this? And you could say, this is Taylor's pizza bike ride. And you would put, you know, your date and your time and where it's going to meet, you know, maybe a blurb about some of the details of the ride. And then we would see that submission and be like, oh, hey, Taylor submitted a ride. Let's put it on the calendar for him. And so if you're subscribed to the calendar, you'll see Taylor's pizza ride on there. And we, I already know people who are like, yeah, I check the calendar like every week just to see if there's anything new. It's great to try to create awareness on social media, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. But those things are only for your followers. And they're also fleeting. You'll put up a flyer and then, you know, the algorithm will start to push it down and people may not see it. So it's good to have another resource, like an actual calendar. And like, we're in this professional world, you know, we all use these calendars. So why not have it for our cycling stuff? Great. How do people find it? Mobility for who and for the Trash Panda Cycling Instagram page, we have the URL for the calendar available. So you can click on the URL and you could subscribe to it. So you could expand this to go across the country, right? I mean, could it be called the United States cycling calendar or the world cycling calendar? And we could have people inputting from Boston to... Or they could just do their own calendar, isn't that... Right. Yeah. In theory, you could make a worldwide calendar. I feel like that would be a very full calendar. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, it would definitely be a really great world if like all these local communities had their own calendars we actually got a nice kudos from pedal palooza which is the group in portland because they had seen that we had put up this calendar they have a similar one as well for portland because pedal palooza is like weeks long event right so they need a calendar for their stuff so they're like yeah you do this year round like good job i thought that was really nice because like you know we love portland and like their cycling culture but yeah in theory if someone had the gumption in time to put something like this together, it's super easy. You know, if they lived in Austin, if they lived in New York, if they lived in Detroit, San Francisco, whatever, they just need to compose the calendar, they can make it public, and they can just start uploading the events. Um, And there's like innumerable options on how to go about it. You can have moderators the way that we have it here in LA, we get the submission forms and we put them up. Or you can even make it like a truly public calendar where anyone could just put it on the calendar it's uh, fairly easy yeah it would be nice if like all these cities had these resources because the whole goal is our initiative was we want to create more awareness and more resources so people can be cycling because it all circles back to incidents like you know the tragedy with magnus white i think we need more cyclists out there and we need more education for community and for our culture to change in order to do that you need to create that awareness in as many ways as you possibly can to get people on bikes and to keep them on bikes, you know, to try to equip them. Hopefully they won't be afraid to be on the road and they'll be with kindred spirits. So if you have more cyclists, then hopefully the climate will start to slowly change in addition to initiatives, you know, regarding education and, you know, having resources and infrastructure for cyclists. 
And it seems like a great way to connect these two worlds, the, the road cyclists and the feasters, so that Absolutely. the feasters can find out about road rides and vice versa. Well, I'm sorry, what? A, a what? A feaster. We've talked a about that. Don't you listen to Bike Talk, Nick? Well, let's say I'm just tuning in. <laughs> Define the term feaster. Feaster is a Danish term for a person who rides a bike, not a road racer, but just a person who rides to work or to school. It sounds pejorative. But it's not. No, I think it's a very positive term. If I said, look at that feaster. <laughs> I'd say, I think it's wow, that is so cool. Well, so thanks, Raf. Thanks for coming on. That's that's amazing. We're going to talk more about that with you, hopefully. And Taylor, you have an interview right now. I spoke with Kevin Claxton of Calbike. He wrote an article called Talking Back to Bike Lash. And Bike Lash, of course, is people pushing back against anything that is moving our city forward. And, you know, you're riding and a car honks at you or buzzes you. How do you deal with that? And Kevin wrote an article about that. And this is that conversation. My guest today is the interim executive director of Calbike. We're really lucky to have Kevin Claxton with us because he has written an article about talking back to bike lash. Kevin Claxton, thanks for your work at Calbike and welcome to Bike Talk. Hi, Taylor. Thank you so much for having me and, and inviting the California Bicycle Coalition onto the show today. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, as you just mentioned, uh, my name is Kevin Claxton. I'm currently the interim executive director for CalBike. CalBike is California's statewide bicycle advocacy nonprofit organization. So we work at the state level to help bring the many benefits of bicycling to all of California's communities, the benefit of health, prosperity, connectivity, equity, and joy. Uh, so we work, like I said, at the state level to advance legislate legislation, state level programs, uh, to call for greater funding that supports folks who want to get out on a bicycle or use active transportation. Well, you wrote an article talking back to bike lash. What inspired you to write that? And what do you mean by talking back to bike lash? Sure. Well, we've uh, some of the members of the CalBike team have noticed recently that there have been some negative criticisms, some negative feedback, and a lot of noise in uh, the media, media recently, really kind of calling out bicycles in particular. I think it's been a response to electric bicycles, which have really seen a boom in popularity over the right. last few years. And, you know, we think it's important to call out some of the inaccuracies that we see and really be pushing back against the narrative that bicycles are taking up valuable car space or a threat to, you know, pedestrians. And um, I think there's a, there are quite a few facets to this argument that I think we're going to try to take a look at today and, and that that article also tried to address. Great. I always love it when people say a 30-pound bicycle is taking up space from a two-ton car. Right, of course. Well, one of the things I often hear is that bikes are in the way. Get out of the road, you know, ride on the sidewalk. So how do you answer something like that? Well, you know, that's that's a tough one. You know, any, any space uh, where we have folks using multiple modes of transportation and they're, they're traffic flows are intersecting, uh, carries potential risks, especially if that space isn't designed and built in a way to support the safe passage of all of those different modes. And in particular, you know, something like biking on the sidewalk, while it certainly isn't ideal, you know, from the perspective of someone on a bicycle, there might be many traffic situations where proceeding in the roadway is 
very much unsafe. I, I can think of many instances, you know, where I uh, live here in Los Angeles, where I'll be proceeding down the road, and and this is a four-lane road that might have a 25 or 30 or 35, you know, mile per hour speed limit, and you know, the option for me to pull off and ride on the sidewalk for a segment of that road that feels unsafe or doesn't have a bike, you know, bike lane, bike facility might be the better option for me to jump up on the sidewalk. And, and that's certainly not ideal, but that's a decision that I have to make, you know, out of the interest of my own safety. And, you know, when I'm looking ahead at that roadway and I'm, I'm about to be scooting along at eight or 10 or 12 miles an hour, sharing space with three and 4,000 pound vehicles that are going 30 or 35 or, you know, navigating pedestrians that are moving two or three miles an hour you know one of those is very much the, the safer option for me as right. a person on a bicycle um, so calbike this year has has been supporting a bill uh, assembly bill 825 called the sidewalk riding bill presented by assembly member isaac bryan and that bill would allow for uh, folks to ride bicycles on sidewalks where there are no uh, bicycle facilities class one two or four bikeways. So I, I thought that was the law now. It, that's not the law now. No, someone could actually be ticketed for that. And I think it's maybe selectively enforced depending right. on on where you are. But, um, you know, we, we think that this is important because it allows people on bicycles to protect themselves, you know, take the, the behaviors that they deem necessary to prote protect themselves on the roadways. And it also, you know, there are some stipulations to this bill that would limit bicycle speeds on the sidewalk and, and work to create protections for pedestrians as well. Um, but we, we think really that this underscores the need to build more safe bikeways and build the infrastructure on the ground that's going to protect people using all modes of transportation. Great. Yeah. I, one of the things I love about riding a bike is that I can behave as a car in certain situations and then behave as a pedestrian in other situations. Like you say, if all of a sudden you're on a busy road, I, I get off that road and ride on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. One of the great things about LA is very few people use the sidewalk. <laughs> that is that is often true, often the case. Yes. Right. Let's talk about maybe a another piece of legislation, the the Idaho Stop Law. That is a, a law that allows bicycles to use stop signs like yield signs and follow the right of way. Is that is that correct? Yes, that is correct. But I think one important distinction that we need to make here is that. This bill, or what's what's um, been called the bicycle safety stop in California legislature for the last few years, hasn't quite uh, become law. This would allow bicyclists to treat a stop sign as a yield when the intersection is clear of other vehicles or pedestrians that would have the right of way. Right. right. So this does not give free reign for folks to just ignore uh, stop signs and traffic signals as they're proceeding through an intersection. This is exclusive to when that that um, right of way is clear. There are no other vehicles or pedestrians, like I mentioned. Meaning that when a bicycle approaches an intersection, they have to follow the right of way. They don't, you Correct. don't have to stop, but you have to slow down and let the car or person that was at the intersection first use their right of way. And then once the, the right of way is yours, you may, you may go on through the intersection. Only in instances where the intersection is clear, can you, as far as I understand it, can you then proceed as though, you know, the stop sign were a yield. So, you know, the reason that this, I think, is acceptable, it's, it's, a, it's a very common and common sense behavior for bicyclists. It is safe, right? And one of the reasons that it's safe is the size and speed of a bicycle. And also the fact that bicyclists are situated up a bit higher, have generally better visibility. Cars have some pretty significant blind spots. And 
people on bicycles weigh a fraction of the overall weight of a vehicle, so they can actually stop quicker. So this is one of the reasons that, you know, we're, we're one of the facts that we're kind of using to push against the misconception that this uh, behavior, which is already quite commonplace, will make intersections more dangerous. Um, and in fact, you know, there this is legal in several other states, and they have shown no negative repercussions. And in some cases, there's actually positive data, in particular from Delaware, which has seen a reduction in collisions between bikes and cars at intersections. Right. Yeah, I've always called it the Idaho stop law because sure. it was legal in Idaho, the deep red state of Idaho. So if it's possible there, it would make me think it's possible here. Absolutely. And unfortunately, there's been um, some pushback. Uh, it hasn't really made it quite all the way through. This bill hasn't made it through the California legislature the last few years. It was pulled this year ahead of an expected veto from the governor's office. So that's, I, I believe, three years in a row that, that Cal Bike has been really working on a, a bill around this, um, kind of also underscores the need for long a long-term advocacy game. We're going to need to kind of um, keep this push up over the next couple of seasons to really move this. Right. Forward. What's the pushback from Newsom's office? Do you know? I couldn't speak to that without checking in uh, a bit deeper with a, a member of our policy staff. Right. I'm curious what it would be, though. I, I, I always hate it when politicians that seem very progressive to me, then, and we've been talking about this on Bike Talk lately, that then they have a split with their progressive leaning feelings when it comes to automotive and bicycle interfacing. Sure. One of the kind of points that you had suggested was that, you know, folks often think that bike lanes might actually slow down traffic or that they're underutilized. Um, and the reality is that bike lanes don't make traffic slower. It's too many cars on the road that make traffic slower. And the right. solution to that is not necessarily to expand our roadways to accommodate a higher volume of, of automotive traffic. We know that when we do that, that in, creates an induced demand and that increases congestion. That's been right. proven positive uh, in California's freeway expansions and by decades of research, right? Um, but what, what would help to kind of reduce that congestion is, is by providing more options for people to get around outside of the car. Creating infrastructure that makes it safer and more convenient to bike, walk, and take transit gives people more options, allows folks that don't want to use a car, not able to use a car to get around more easily. And that means more space on the streets for people who do need to drive or choose to drive. Right. Great. So by putting in a bike lane, you're actually allowing people to choose not to drive, thus taking cars off the road. Yes, absolutely. And to respond to folks who say that, you know, they see empty bike lanes, you know, um, I think you might not see people in bike lanes because there are almost never bicycle traffic jams, one. And a bike lane <laughs> may serve hundreds or thousands of folks on bicycles passing through a day and could appear empty or, or sparsely used at any given moment. And car lanes are often the same. You know, we see streets that are often empty or, or unused outside of rush hour. We build car capacity to really um, allow for that and, and, and support use during only a kind of a limited period of the day. So, you know, and the other question related to kind of underused or underutilized bike lanes is, are these bike lanes and bikeways safe? Are they protected from traffic? Do they connect to other right. bikeways? Right. Or do they kind of 
drop you out into the middle of a, a busy intersection with right. with no connected path or, or thoroughfare to get you to a trail or another right. lane or wherever you need to go. Which, of um, course, then makes it hard to use that bike lane if, if, it, if it's not very safe in the first place and if it just drops you off at a at a dangerous intersection. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, we know that bike lanes make all road users safer. Studies have shown that on streets with protected bike lanes, fatalities go down for people biking, walking, and traveling by car. So a bike lane really uh, improves safety for all road users. And then I'll add right there, whether they're used or not. Sure. That the bike Absolutely. lane makes the road safer regardless. So I want to ask you about e-bikes because I, I feel like e-bikes are a game changer. They're going to allow so many more people to use multimodal transportation to get to a subway or to just travel longer distances to get to work or to travel in different you know, times of the year. And when it's hot in summertime, you can ride an e-bike and not get to work all sweaty. What are you dealing with and how do you deal with the, the bike lash on e-bikes? Sure. Well, obviously we've seen um, a, a real explosion in popularity in electric bicycles over the last few years. I think that only further illustrates the drive that many people have to try something else outside of the car, right? To, to try an alternative mode of transportation, to try getting around by bike or transit or right. foot. What we need to think about first is that bicycle fatalities have been increasing since 2010, long before e-bikes were really like a fixture and, and, and uh, booming in popularity. In 2021, 90% of bike fatalities in the US were people over the age of 20. The rate, the bike fatality rate for youth has gone down by 90% since 2010, and it's increased by 400% for folks over 20 during that same period of time. And that's from the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety analyzing data from US Department of Transportation's fatality analysis reporting system. Wow. So there's been an increase in traffic violence and in bicycle fatalities since long before the use of e-bikes. Right. E-bikes are still bicycles. They have the capacity to go a little faster than standard bikes. They have electric motor support. So they have the capacity to go faster, but that doesn't mean that people are riding e-bikes at 20 or 28 miles per hour exclusively the whole time that they're on. Right. And you know, while e-bikes maybe weigh more than a standard bike, they're generally fitted with quite heavy-duty brakes that allow them to stop, you know, well because of that. We know that there are many, many benefits to e-bikes. They enable all sorts of folks to choose a bicycle for all sorts of reasons, maybe related to their, you know, personal level of fitness or mobility or related to the terrain that they're trying to navigate or move around yeah, or, totally. or allowing them to cover a greater distance or deal with the weather. Um you know, and, and in particular, things like the, the electric assist and motor assist might actually be a safety feature for many people. It, it will allow them to get into the flow of traffic at a speed that's maybe a little more agreeable with the other vehicles that they have to share the road with. It might allow people to boost out of a more dangerous or unsafe situation more quickly. There's quite a bit bundled up in this, this growing narrative that e-bikes are inherently unsafe. And I just don't think that that it's true that e-bikes are unsafe. What's right. unsafe often are the conditions in which people have to operate those bikes right. and on, on roadways that don't uh, aren't built to accommodate electric bicycles. So, right. but what we do know is that in 2021, 
over 7,300 people walking were killed by people driving cars. And that's at 80%, 7,300, more than 7,300. 7,300 people were killed by cars walking or biking in California, in the This country? would be in the country, right? Okay. Wow. And that is an 80% increase since 2009. So wow. the, the crisis is not, you know, the, the panic around electric bicycles. It's, it really needs to be about the violence that is being perpetuated on vulnerable users of the road, pedestrians and bicyclists. By cars. By cars. You know, one of the last things I want to talk about is there are disrespectful bike riders out there. And I know sometimes I do not ride perfectly within the rules of, of what's acceptable on the road because I need to get to this intersection or it's not safe for me to ride. How, how do you talk back to somebody when they complain about bright bikers breaking the rules or being rude on the street? So the rules of the road were designed for people driving cars, not bikes. And, and in some cases are counter to safe and logical bike riding. So until we adapt our streets to accommodate the needs of all users, people on bikes will do their best to stay safe. And sometimes that might mean, you know, participating in and electing into behaviors that, you know, skirt the rules or, or sure, right, right, riding the wrong way on the yep. on the road or riding on the sidewalk. And again, that's not to say that there aren't people who are just being reckless on bicycles and doing things that are not appropriate right. and not following right. the, the rules of the road. But yeah. all of this underscores a greater need for the infrastructure that's going to keep all road users safer and a, a deeper shared understanding of how all of us as road users, all of us as people who are just trying to get where we need to go, we need to be educated about how we share that space with each other. Right, right. You know, the last question I have for you, Kevin, is what do you say to people who say, hey, we're not Amsterdam, we're not Europe. Bicycles and this kind of transportation is never going to work here. This is America. California, in particular, has such a fantastic climate for riding bicycles year-round. In Los Angeles, so many people live in the valleys, in the basin, in the flats, where it's it's relatively easy to get around. It's it's uh, there are not huge hills and geographic obstacles. We should be one of one of the greatest places in the world to ride a bike year-round. You know the the other point here worth worth considering is that places like Copenhagen or An Amsterdam, which are famous for their bicycle culture, have not always been bicycle cities. They made a conscious decision some decades ago to build the infrastructure needed to make biking a safe and appealing option for a really wide range of people. And we've seen other major cities in the world achieve this in, in the last few years and decades as well. Uh, there's been incredible progress in Paris, there's been incredible progress in New York. So, you know, we know that that this can be done. And um, I really think that we we can do better than just kind of setting the bar at, at Copenhagen or Amsterdam or other European cities when we, we have uh, the makings for an incredible transportation future here. Perfect. Kevin, how do people find out about CalBike and find out about you? And uh, where can they go to learn more about some of the things that CalBike is doing? Sure. Um, if you're interested in learning more about our organization, the California Bicycle Coalition, and our work, you can head to our website, www.calbike.org, C-A-L-B-I-K-E, 
www.ecofinancialcollective.org. We're very excited that we've just recently confirmed our new executive director. It's going to be a person named Kendra Ramsey. She, her, based out of Sacramento, seasoned active transportation planner and land use professional with just an incredible background in the nonprofit and uh, kind of public department of transportation and private planning space. So we're so excited for her to come on board later this month and, and um, help kind of our organization step into its next chapter and continue doing work to help um, bring the many benefits of bicycling to communities all over California. Great. Well, Kevin, thanks very much. I look forward to talking with, with Kendra, but thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for writing your article, Talking Back to Bike Lash, and thanks for coming on Bike Talk. Thanks so much to Bike Talk. Thanks to you, Taylor. Really great to be here. Really appreciate it. Kevin has addressed some basic misconceptions that people have, like the e-bike hysteria or backlash and safety stop. I felt like he gave us tools with which to communicate to people that we speak with, whether they be our friends or even people on the street sometimes, combating misinformation, like you said, about e-bikes. Yeah, there was that article in the New York Times talking about the danger of e-bikes recently. And the first story in the article is about a kid who got hit by a car on his e-bike. And that was supposed to illustrate the danger of e-bikes as yeah. opposed to cars. The real danger is always cars. Absolutely. We just have been programmed or, or miseducated in a way to think about cars as part of nature. <laughs> like That's just like you're going swimming yeah. with sharks. But there's this artificial danger that we've created. We act as if there's nothing we can do about it. Right. He also talked about the... Idaho stop law or the, the safety stop law. And he said that Gavin Newsom's office has rejected it like two or three years in a row. And I so find that really distressing. Gavin is the governor of California. Right. And it's weird because whenever I run a stop sign and somebody yells at me, I tell them it's actually the law. <laughs> <laughs> and and then you go, and it should be the law. <laughs> no, no, I, I literally just say it is the law. There are data that says that the Idaho stop law or the safety stop law is safer for cars and bikes. You know what it's not, though? It's not more convenient for cars. You know, that's not true, Seamus. It is more no, convenient. But anything that is felt or viewed as an inconvenience to car flow, right? Uh, you will get pushback. Or unfair. It's unfair that the bicycle gets to run the stop sign if well, they have the right of way and a car can't. I do think that it comes down to convenience of cars. Any idea that we have to make our streets safer, which will either slow down traffic or increase penalties on, on drivers, people react to. Right. In San Francisco, the police were starting to ticket cyclists who ran stop signs in this one section of, of San Francisco. So what all the bikers did was they stopped at every stop sign on that route and every cyclist stopped at the stop sign. And that's what slows down cars. If every bike comes to the stop sign and stops and looks both ways and then goes, then the car will never get to the stop sign. But the Idaho stop law allows cyclists to use stop lines as yield as long as they follow the right of way, which means if a car is already at the intersection or at the intersection first, that car has the right of way. The cyclist has to give that right of way to the car. Once the car's used that right of way, then the cyclist can go on through without having to come to a complete stop. It's just something the DMV 
should be educating people about is absolutely cyclists, alternative modes of transportation. Drivers really need to react better. Right. Well, up next, we have an interview with um, Courtney Crowder and Kelsey Kramer and Shim Bitterman about RAGBRAI. Seamus, do you know what RAGBRAI is? I don't, Taylor. Well, you're going to find out. But we have a fun interview today. I have three guests, one rider and two people that are very responsible for one of the oldest and best organized rides across Iowa. Shim Bitterman, I want to welcome you first. You were on the show a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about riding the strike, about the riders and actors that are on strike in Los Angeles. And Kelsey Kramer, who is the photo journalist of the Des Moines Register, and also Courtney Crowder who is, works for the Des Moines Register and also very involved in RAGBRAI. Shim, maybe you can tell us first, what is RAGBRAI? Okay, well, I, I don't know if I'm the best person to say this, but I'll, I'll <laughs> say that RAGBRAI was, is, a, is a ride across Iowa. It goes from the Missouri to the Mississippi River, and every year for the last 50 years, it's always a different route, a slightly different route, I'm sure. The Iowa is a place that's uh, sort of a magical place, I would say, because there's a there's thousands upon thousands of small towns. Each town seems to have its own unique story uh, that's somehow deeply embedded in American history. Uh, whether it's the town that uh, is the Jefferson town that's along the Lincoln Highway, which was the first interstate highway across America whether it's the town that that the Maytag family created Maytag and has a beautiful old hotel and and vaudeville house that was built for guests with a performing pig that is in the Guinness Book of World Records. Every story, uh, as you travel through these small towns, which tend to be between 10 and 15 miles apart, so each stage of this ride, you're going from pie and beer to uh, bratwurst and uh, regional Iowa dishes, as well as long-term vendors. And you're having this wonderful culinary beer guzzling uh, and other guzzling experience. And you're experiencing America's history and its small town history and its rural life. And it's um, and you're meeting people who are living in these towns and since they're living history. And it's one of the rare opportunities i think that people especially coastal people like me because i was born in new york and and living in los angeles have to really experience what uh small town america is what the center of america is and to me it's a wonderfully optimistic thing and the last thing i'll say about this wonderful ride across iowa which is 500 tends to be between four and five hundred miles per per year and um depending on the route and is that it's a wonderful way to connect uh, the fabric, not only of the country, but across generations. I met a man who, when his father was one of the first writers at Ragbri, and he always used to tell his son, his son would say, dad, he would tell him stories about Ragbri, and his son was like, dad, when can I go? And the dad said, when you're 12, I'll take you. And he took him across Iowa on a bike at 12 years old. And I met this man now, and now this man, this son has four daughters. And I met him with his 12-year-old daughter. And every time, every one of his daughters that turns 12, he takes her across Iowa on that ride generations can connect and stay connected. And I went with my daughter. I was going to say, yeah. So and, and, and 
what does Kevin Costner say in the movie? It's not heaven, it's Iowa. Something <laughs> like think, that. I think Iowa is better than heaven. <laughs> yeah. So, Courtney, maybe you can uh, tell us what what is RAGBRAI? I mean, first of all, what is RAGBRAI? R-A-G-B-R-A-I. Uh, the Register's Annual Great Bicycle Ride Across Iowa. And I just have to say, that was a really beautiful introduction to RAGBRAI. Um, Kelsey and I work at the Des Moines Register. I'm the Iowa columnist there, and she's the photo editor. And so we are steeped in RAGBRAI and steeped in Iowa, and it's really refreshing to hear, you know, that that our state really hit those marks. So thank you so much for sharing that. And and Shem's experience is is what five fifty thousand people experienced. Um, I think what's really special about RAGBRAI is the stories that exist literally one paddle stroke away. And so Shem, I'd love to talk to you more about that, honestly. But RAGBRAI is, a, it. he did a great job of explaining generally what it is, right? We go from the Missouri to the Mississippi, it's over seven days, and you stop in overnight towns along the way as you make your way across. It is different routes every year. This year's route hewed closely to what the original 50th route was. Um, so 50 years ago, Two columnists at the Des Moines Register, John Karras and Donald Call, were part of the very early adult biking boom of the 1970s. Uh, they would get out on their bikes and do, you know, 40 miles around the gravel of Des Moines. Really unique when you think about 1973 as sort of recreational bicyclists of adult men. Um, and the story goes, they wanted the Register to pay their way as they bicycled across <laughs> Iowa. So they went to the bosses and they pitched, what if uh, we wrote stories along the way? And the bosses kind of one-upped them and said, what if you wrote stories along the way and you also invited readers to join you? And both Donald Call and John Karras thought that was kind of a dumb idea. Who was going to do this with them? Who was going to take, it was six days originally out of their life to come across Iowa on a very then unsupported sort of unorganized ride. And about 250 people showed up for that first ride wow. and really kicked off what has become the world's oldest, longest, and largest recreational bicycle touring event in the world. Wow. Um, and, and just quickly, like to Shem's point, what Donald Call and John Karras knew is that to truly understand rural Iowa and honestly, large swaths of rural America, you have to get out into it. You have to be on its gravels roads and you have to be in its main streets and you have to look people in the eyes. And those were the kind of stories that I think drew the magic of RAGBRAI for so many people who weren't on the ride. And that's why you see it grow from 250 to, you know, what some are saying is 60,000 this year. Wow, but but you said normally it's not quite sixty thousand because that it's the fiftieth anniversary this year. Yeah, normally it's about twenty. So I mean, still, I mean, twenty thousand people are taking it's because it's not only seven days, right? You got to get there. It's kind of far. You got to get home. You got to have your rest days. People are taking more than a week and a half off to completely put their life on pause right. and come to Iowa the last week of July to ride across this state. <laughs> and they're doing that for a reason. Right. Um, when you say that the ride is supported, can you sort of explain what that means? Does, do, do people carry everything with them? And then, or, or how, does, how does the actual ride work? 
Sure. Yeah, this is a bike podcast, right? So probably interested in some of that stuff. So um, if you register there, let me back up and say there's so many ways to rag bry. There are so many ways to rag bry. Um, it's a matter of pride to some people to literally have everything on their bike and be able to carry it all and use no support and do it all by themselves. Then there are charter services that is like grade A four-star service. They set everything up in tents for you and sometimes hotels for you. Generally, people register. And with that registration, you get access to the route, access to medical care. So we have ambulances all along the ride taking care of people, access to our campgrounds, and access to the baggage trucks. So there's a time in the morning and a time in the afternoon that the baggage trucks are open where you can either drop your stuff off, your tent, your bags, whatever, or pick it up, and then you set up in this campground. But you don't have to bring cooking things or anything like that. You eat in restaurants or the... Mm -hmm. That they have every overnight town. It's really a giant party. Like it's a, a classic street fair is what I would say in these overnight towns. So they have big concerts. This year we had very, very large concerts. Leonard Skinner was in Des Moines for this. Wow. Um, but they have, you know, vendors, funnel cakes, fair, tacos, stuff that you would find at a street festival. So normally that's where people are eating or they're venturing to some of the local restaurants in these towns. You know, one more question. How do the towns deal with it? How do they handle it? Do they welcome the riders with open arms or is it 20,000 people coming into our little town? They welcome the riders with open arms. Um, this is a big deal for any town that's a part of RAGBRAI. Uh, RAGBRAI does supplement some money to these towns. So they put up a little bit of money just to make sure that they are able to support this many people. But this right. is a huge money making moment for these towns. So right. Quimby, Iowa, I wrote a story about Quimby, Iowa. Quimby, Iowa has 249 people via last census that live in Quimby, Iowa, 249. And they baked more than 300 pies wow. for a to come through. <laughs> um, selling those at $4 a slice, they made quite, they made quite a killing. So this is a big deal for these towns. And it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of volunteers, hundreds of hours. They're planning for months, but it's a big deal for them. Right. Well, it sounds like it. Kelsey, you made a documentary or you were involved in a documentary about RAGBRAI. Can you explain that? What's the title? And Yes, absolutely. So the documentary is called Shift, the RAGBRAI documentary. Courtney and I worked on it together. And, you know, I think so you, uh, we, everyone so far has talked about this, but there's this magic to RAGBRAI and there's um, a lot of storytelling opportunity to RAGBRAI. And so when Courtney and I started talking uh, about wanting to put together a documentary, RAGBRAI was a really obvious choice because every person, every writer has a story and has a reason for, you know, taking all this time off from their life and, you know, biking across Iowa. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort and it's a lot of time with yourself on the road. And so to celebrate the 50th anniversary, we made this hour long documentary that follows three riders and um, a pair of community leaders. They are the, they were the organizers for the last town on the ride on the 49th ride. So we filmed primarily on the 49th ride of RAGBRAI, um, spent a little bit of time with um, our characters sort of before the ride as well, but uh, followed them through the ride and then put together this documentary that follows, you know, uh, four of their, their four unique paths through through the ride uh, and sort of that like experience for all of them. Can you tell us one of the stories? Uh, sure. So we have 
a first-time rider. His name is Adam Lineberry. Um, Adam has battled through addiction multiple times in his life, and so he's actually biking uh, the continental United States over the course of four years. So Iowa was his, his Iowa ride was Ragbri, and so he was interesting to us because we wanted to include a first-time rider. Um, he biked with his son Liam, um, who was nine years old at the time. Uh, and so, you know, their stories, all, his story is, you know, all about sort of overcoming addiction and then, you know, raising awareness and interacting with people on the ride and through his ride also all over the country. Um, we have Dana Chandler. Dana is the leader of the Black Girls Do Bike chapter in Des Moines. Uh, and so, you know, she talks about the experience of being a Black woman in Iowa and in cycling, you know, and she's all about sort of getting, you know, people who are like her, uh, she says, Black buns and brown buns on bikes. And so, <laughs> you know, she is all about sort of getting that experience out and sharing it with people. Um, and then we have Tori and Daniel, uh, Tori Giffen. She owns a... Um, bicycle themed resort in Colorado Springs. So it's like you take your bike there it's called the Buffalo Lodge bicycle resort. And they take people, you know, on bicycle tours and you can take your bike right into your room. There's like hooks on the wall to hang it, all of that. Um, and so she did rag ride uh, years ago when she was, you know, still single, didn't have any kids. And then she came back to the ride and has been bringing her kids along. And I don't want to fully give away her story. No, either, no, please don't. You know, so bringing, you know, bringing her family back on the ride and sort of what that has done for them, which has done quite a lot. And then we have uh, the couple from Lansing. Well, don't tell us all of it because I want to okay, leave it well, for some other people. Well, I, the only other I didn't tell you about was the couple in Lansing. And so I'll just say that they're the organizers of the end town of the ride, which is a big deal because, right, you've just biked for seven days. And so when you get to the end town, you dip your tire in the Mississippi River. It's a really, you know, exciting, triumphant moment. So we featured those folks. Well, that sounds great. Where can people see shit? So we've been finding places, um, we've been reaching out to theaters. So, you know, we showed it along the ride and have been showing it in Iowa a lot. Um, but we're also looking for um, other places where there are sort of like biking teams from Rag Ride or sort of like pockets of interest. And we'll reach out to a theater and try to do some showings. And then we're also working on film festivals right now. And then once we're done with that, we hope to have it streaming somewhere. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Shim, this was your second year doing the ride, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you find that a lot of people do it more than once? Or maybe Courtney, you can answer that also. But Shim, did you do it two years in a row or did you take a break or what? No, I did it two years in a row. And and I've I encountered many people who've done it multiple times, including generationally, like I said. Right, right. Oh, it's a badge of pride. I, you know, I mean, I don't know how many times people asked you, Shem, but it's a, it's a common question. How many rag rides have you been on? Oh, um, yeah. There are only three people who have been on all 50 that we have counted. So uh, I wrote a story about that. You can go ahead and find that on the Des Moines register.com as well. But I met a guy who did 43, you know, twenties, people who've done twenties is like a, a big number. Yeah. It's a big deal to do it over and over and over. Wow. Um, can you tell me what it costs to, to sign up for it and when it is next year? I knew you were going to ask me that. Um, so it is <laughs> always, it is literally always the last full week of July. So oh, okay. the last full week of July, that is going to be RAGBRAI always. Um, and the cost for registration, do you know, Shem? I, I thought it was like, is it like 240 bucks or something? Something that like sounds, that. I that mean, sounds right. Honestly, <laughs> you know, 
a deal for what you get yeah, to be honest yeah. i think yeah. it's it's not that expensive it's definitely less than 300 dollars for sure you know i i don't want to sound stupid but after you ride from missouri river to the mississippi river do you have to then turn around and ride back to fly home or to go home or how do you how does iowa deal with 50,000 people getting out of iowa on sunday you know august yeah. 1st i i have to say taylor i'll, I'll t i have to say that it is always fascinating, logistically challenging. <laughs> and uh, and um, as Courtney said, you know, there are these services that will take you, you can make a deal where somebody will take you part of the way. But actually, I should add that the people we wound up riding with this year were all people that were facilitating, helping facilitate my daughter come from to, to come from Austin, somebody she was driving back to Austin, somebody that drove him to the to to from Austin to uh Ragbri. And those wound up being like our group. We camp with them every night. So th this is I think what people are talking about, like making connections. Uh, you know, part of the logistics is actually part of what often brings you in contact with people. And last year it was the same thing for me. I, I took the Amtrak because if you take Amtrak, you don't have to unpack your bike. It's $15. Oh additionally and it's only 150 bucks to go from sacramento to um oklahoma uh, to omaha wow and 15 bucks for your bike and they roll it right off the train and i met several people on the train who i wound up meeting again and again during ragbri and hung with and had beers with and stayed in contact with with one even sent me a uh a, a beautiful uh watercolor that she made oh yeah yeah <laughs> That's from the train. So, so yeah, I mean, it's connecting with people. And part of the connecting is just the logistical part because we rely on one another to get from place to place. Right. And that's just kind of cool. Well, another yeah. thing that happens on RAGRAI is that often teams or groups will stay in the homes and yards of people in the overnight towns. So, you know, when we talked about the community sort of opening their doors, the other thing that happens is that people will camp all over town in lawns and stay in people's houses. And so that's also sort of like another piece of, of that rag ride, like community connection. Oh, it sounds wonderful. It sounds just great. The, the actual official support of RAGRAI is in those seven days along the route. So getting to the start and getting home from the end is is the logistical, uh, I don't even want to say challenge, because honestly, it always comes together for people. But that is, that's for every rider to figure out on their own. Sure, sure. Well, it sounds like it. Well, thank you so much for coming on Bike Talk and telling us about RAGBRAI. We've been getting into more of these kinds of uh, trips. And I think the rails to trails idea is really helping small towns prosper you know that have been left behind by the highway system and now the bikes can come back in and, and support those towns before we go uh, i wonder if y'all could tell us how to find out more information about ragbri but also about shift the documentary about ragbri ragbri is easy it's just ragbri.com is ragbri's website and then for the documentary it's demoinregister.com slash ragbri documentary and Great. then that website has, you know, the trailer for the documentary and it has all of our current showings and all of that sort of information. Great. And so SHIP is going to be in film festivals in the near future, but you're looking for distribution for the long term. Great. Yeah. Well, Kelsey, Courtney, Shim, thanks for being on Bike Talk. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for that interview. I think people need to know about RAGBRAI. 
Yeah, I, it, it really sounds like a blast. I, I would love to do that with my 12-year-old daughter, except that she's now 21. <laughs> she could do no, it now. she can. Yeah, yeah. But, and it really makes you realize that the bicycle is a perfect instrument to explore new worlds. The bike travels at the perfect speed of observation. And so I love this idea of, you know, riding through the middle of Iowa. It just sounds beautiful to me. Yeah, I got to do that. And we talked about the biking calendar too. I'd love to just see a network of bike calendars so you yeah. can click on your neighborhood. What I do when I go home or when I travel, I often just find a bike store and ask someone in the bike store if there's a, a local ride. And they'll tell me, yeah, Saturday morning at you know, seven o'clock meet here at the bike shop. But if there's a bike calendar, you might find a ride that fits your needs better. It'd be great to have at least a bike calendar for every area that Bike Talk is on the radio. Absolutely. I want to go back to quick to what Kevin Claxton said about riding on the sidewalk. I thought it was legal to ride on the sidewalk if there was no bicycle infrastructure on the road that runs adjacent to the sidewalk. And I'm so I'm glad that Cal Bike is working to make that actually legal because that's a great opportunity for police to selectively enforce who they stop for riding on the sidewalk. Well, I think we're, we want to move away from that. Absolutely. We want to not penalize people for trying to be safe. Yeah. So next episode, we're going to have bike mechanic answering questions. So if anybody has anything you want to ask, go to biketalk.org. Give us your questions for our bike mechanic for next episode. On a previous episode, we had Lucas on who answered some questions about chain maintenance. And, you know, I got to tell you, right after I listened to the show, I went out and oiled my chain and cleaned it off and got it running great. And now my bike is silent and smooth. Maybe you have a question for our mechanic next time. I think I want to talk about gears. And adjusting those damn things. All right. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks, Nick. Be safe out there. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Catch yourself a bike. 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 Just off the bike.